The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to follow along on the screens. The text will be there. Um, and before I read this, let me just say a word of, um, of thanks to Greg for, for filling in for me last week and, uh, and continuing right along in our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, a living reflection of the living God. And um, so thankful that I um, have so many, Greg and, and uh, Wallace and Terry and so many others that, uh, that can fill in, that, that can be there. We're so blessed to have so many great preachers and teachers that sit in these seats every week. I, we sang that song earlier, Ethan. There's a, one of the verses um, talks about when this stammering, when this poor lisping, lisping stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, talks about this, this sweet song that we'll sing. Yeah, and, and it, we're going to sing a much sweeter, nobler Way, God's power to save one day. He's coming back. And I, that's not the exact words, but he's coming back. And we're going to live and reign with him. And I, I was so just taken by that line. I don't know that it, I've ever sang that verse. We probably have. And I just probably haven't noticed it before. But, you know, for somebody that stands in a pulpit every week and, and has the task of speaking to people, uh, so many times I feel just like that, this lisping, stammering tongue, trying to convey the truth of the, of the gospel and the word of God to you. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when it won't be me trying to preach to sinners who need to be saved. There's coming a day when we will all join with one voice around the throne of our God and sing the power of God to save forever and ever, ever and ever. Isn't that good? Wait, that almost sounded like a Randy Travis song there, forever and ever, amen. But I won't go there. Well, today... We'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, together, and this is a section of Scripture where believers are bringing lawsuits against believers. And the, the title of this sermon this morning, my wife told me that it was incredibly corny and that I probably should change this title, but my title is, Should Judge Judy Go to Church? <laughs> you can make your own judgment on that, whether that is corny and I should have changed it, that's, that's okay. Uh, based on your response, I think I probably should have, but... Uh, you, we all remember, we all remember thinking back and remembering the, the story of the lady who got the coffee in the drive-thru at McDonald's. Remember that? And, and she, as she was beginning to pull away from the, the drive-thru, she set the cup of coffee between her knees to add cream to the coffee, and it spilled. And immediately, third-degree burns. Uh, and she sued, uh, she sued McDonald's to cover the medical costs. In the end, she was initially... $2.7 million in damages, but eventually the number was lessened to about $640,000. She got $640,000 for spilling something on her that she should know is hot. Isn't that, isn't that just ludicrous? Isn't that where we are in society? That everyone feels entitled, and if, if you wrong me in some way, then I'll see you in court. Well... That's what, exactly what's going on in this text today. 
In the, uh, in the Athenian and the Corinthian culture, they were lawsuit happy. Uh, it was part of their everyday life. Litigation was, was uh, even a form of entertainment for them. Uh, let me just give you some background on, on what society was like then. If two people had a dispute in their day, they were not allowed to settle this between themselves. They were first assigned uh, private arbitrators. These arbitrators, one to each party, and, and they would together try to resolve this issue. The two arbitrators, along with a neutral third person, would attempt to resolve the problem. If they failed, then their case was turned over to a court of 40. Um, they, the, each, each party was assigned then a public arbitrator who would argue the case. Uh, in this society there in Corinth, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator. Not just those trained in law, but every citizen, when they were 60 years old, had to serve as a public attorney, if you will, a public arbitrator. If uh, public arbitration failed, then the case would go to a jury court. This was not a jury of 10 or 12. This could be a jury of between several hundred and several thousand to hear this case. Every citizen over 30 years old had to pull jury duty at some point in their lives. How many of you have ever had to serve jury duty? Um, believe it or not, in all these years, I've never had to serve jury duty. Now, I'll probably get a letter this week saying I've got to pull jury duty. But uh, it's no, no fun. But in this, in this society, it was so rampant and it was such, such, such a part of the society that it became entertainment. And everybody was involved in this in some way. And as you can imagine, those that were in the church at Corinth, those that had been saved out of this culture who were now part of the church, they struggled to leave this part of their lives behind. And even in the church, they were doing these things that they had grown up seeing and doing. And they were, they'd have a dispute between a brother or a sister in the church. And instead of walking through that, which Roman law allowed them to, the Romans saw the church, the Christian church, as a sect of the Jewish society, which had special privilege to, to, see, to see to their own cases. This is why the, the, the Jews could condemn Jesus except for death, and they had to take him then before a Roman trial. Well, they, they could in the church settle this on their own, but many of the believers in the church at Corinth were instead suing one another, taking one another before public litigation in front of the whole city, making a mockery of this thing of the gospel. Um, they weren't dealing with things the way they should be dealing with them. They were dealing with them out of the house, should have been dealt with in the house. Well, we don't exactly have this problem today. This was the struggle I had when I came to this text. I thought, you know, I've got to preach about believers suing believers, and, and the majority of you are going to tune me out. So I think there's an issue here that's more the heart of the issue. We don't exactly have a problem today with me having to show up at court and give character witness. I have had to do that. It's been a long time, but, but we don't have that going on every, every week. It's not part of my life as a pastor to show up and, in court because somebody over here is upset with somebody over here. But there are still problems that arise in the church, aren't there? If you've been around church at all, you really wanted to say a hearty amen to that. There are, church, there are problems in the church today. Uh, sadly, many of us have been around churches where it seems that this is part of the culture of the church. The church almost seems addicted to problems and fights. 
It's a source of entertainment. And there are some that show up only when there are fights. Or if, if it's not a good fight, if there's not anything real juicy and good going on, well, they get bored and they move on to a church that might seem to have some fights. And this is true. That's what Paul says here in our text. He says, when one of you has a grievance. Not, not if you have a grievance. He says, when you have a grievance. There's going to be problems and issues that arise because at the end of the day, we're people. There's not one of us that could walk in the sandals of Jesus. We're still in this process of being made holy, being made like Christ, and we still get our feelings hurt, and we still wear our feelings on our sleeve at times. And there are real issues that come up, but I think Paul addresses this. The same thing that drove them to court is what drives us to problems with one another today, a desire to get what we want when we want it. Isn't it? This is illustrated. I've used this illustration many times before, but it's illustrated when you drive up and down Interstate 85 or Interstate 26. You're in the fast lane and you're trying to get somewhere and there's that inevitable person, usually from Ohio. No offense to those of you who are from Ohio. I grew up in Kentucky and that's the way it was there. I spent several years there. But they're in the fast lane and they're not even doing the speed limit. And you get upset. What are you doing? Don't you know that you're not supposed to be in this lane? And you ride up on them and you get real close and your wife's over there hitting you. Back off. Back off. You know, or in my case, it's me hitting my wife. Back (laughs) off. Back off. (laughs) And then finally you you back off and you swerve over in the lane and you run by them and you kind of look at them as you go by. Like, what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? Don't you know this is my highway? You know? And this is what drives us to problems in the church. Today I want to show you two different things out of this text. I want to show you what causes so many of our problems and then how we can solve them. Let's, let's look at our text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? The brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. First of all, what causes so many problems among us in the church and without, but particularly in the church? Number one, mistaken identity. 
mistaken identity. In verses 2 and 3, it says, Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but who are the saints? And, and don't say one of the teams that's not playing in the Super Bowl today. The saints are you and I, those who are in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, we are the saints. I had this conversation with my kids coming up the road one day, not too long back. One of them said, Dad, I don't understand. Who are the saints? I said, we are. We're the saints. And they were taken aback by the very notion that the Bible calls us saints. The saved are those that are resting in the work of Christ, not their own. Not laboring to to earn the favor of God, but that are resting there in Christ. Many Christians struggle to see themselves in this way, to see themselves as saints. They somehow feel that, well, you know, I, I needed grace to be saved, but now that I'm saved, it's up to me to keep it. This is the mentality that is plaguing the church. We say things like, in a laughing, joking way, yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, I'm no saint. To do that is to belittle the holiness of God. To laugh at sin in our lives and act like it's no big deal. I'm no saint. To belittle the holiness of God. To say this in a self-debasing way. In an insecure way. To say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint is to belittle the power of God. It's to belittle that He can do a work in your life, that He has done a work of grace in your life. We're on one extreme or the other usually, but the Bible calls us saints, not because of what we do or what we don't do, but because of what He has done and what He is doing in us and what He will do that we celebrate and look forward to. What does it say in the text? What does it say? If we're the saints, what does it say that the saints will do? We'll judge the world, right? Don't you know that we'll judge the world? Don't you know that we will judge angels? Somehow, we don't understand all of this, but somehow in the, in the great scheme of God, we will be included in the reign of God throughout eternity. The ruling and the reigning and the judging of God. Daniel 7, this is, looks back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And in Daniel 7, 21 and 22, it looks forward to the future event. Daniel says, as I looked, this horn, he's speaking of the beasts that will, that will plague the church. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until... Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Revelation 3 verse 21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant to him with me to sit on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I think the point is this. If we're going to judge the world and inherit the universe, that's really what we're going to do. You get that, right? That's what we're on our way to. We spend so much time accumulating things that don't matter, that wind up in garage sales or or wind up at the barnyard. 
not putting down the barnyard. We love our partnership there. But we spend so, many time, so much time chasing after those things that will rust and decay and matter little or nothing. We're going to inherit the universe. If that's so, then doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make the things that we get upset over here seem very petty? Think about it. So many things that we sometimes get so hot about and so worked up over, if we would simply sleep on it, it would all be resolved. So much of it doesn't matter at all. And this is the point. Even though we are saints that stand to inherit the world, we live like sinners trying to make the most of what we have because we believe this is all there is. This is the point that we, we have problems with one another because we're living for this world. We're mistaken in our identity that we're not, we're not creatures that are made for this one existence. I mean, YOLO is a lie for the Christian. You don't only live once. We live forever. We live forever. Ever. We put too much effort and time into pursuing things here that don't matter. That's why he says trivial cases in verse 2. And I want to ask you this question. How much of what we treat as supreme court matters are really issues for small claims court? How much of it could be swept away if we would gain this attitude that this is not my home, that I am passing through this world, that the things that I think I can't live without, I can certainly live without. Secondly, problems happen in our midst and and among us, oftentimes because of wrong direction. Not just mistaken identity, but wrong direction. In verses 4 and 5, he says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have No standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? Often, problems persist in a church because one or more of the parties are turning to worldly sources of wisdom. He says here, you're laying these matters before people who have no standing in the church. And don't we do the same thing? We may not be taking them to court, but we're turning to other sources for help and for guidance. We turn to pop psychology and the latest book, Dr. Phil. We turn to the internet. The internet. Do you realize what all is on the internet? And sometimes we pull something down off the internet and we say, well, that's true, it's on the internet. you realize anybody out there with a computer can put anything they want on the internet? why would we, who are the recipients of the grace of God, who believe and know that He lives and that He has spoken, turn anywhere but the Word of God? That's Paul's point. He says, why are you turning to these who have no standing? They're not going to make judgment on the case based on the same principle and the same standards that God has given us. They don't have them. The words of life. But often we don't see these as the words of life. We see them as Words of suggestion. Words of advice. But these are the words of life. It's the word of God. 
John MacArthur pointed out that there is not one truth, there is not one standard that will one day be that we don't already have revealed to us in the Word of God. Everything we need for life and godliness we have. Why would we turn somewhere else? We turn to wrong direction. The Word of God is to be the final arbiter for us. We spend way too much time laying this before those who have no standing in the church. And one of the reasons that God frowns so much on lawsuits is because what it says to a world when, when a believer is suing another believer is it says to the watching world, God must be incapable. I mean, they talk about the Word of God. They, they like the Bible, but the Bible must not say a whole lot because they're going outside and around it. And really what this is about is it, it, it casts a negative shadow on the ability and the capability of God. So many issues, it says to the world, the Word of God is not sufficient to handle even the smallest issues that Christians have. Even in their midst, the ones Paul's talking to when he's talking to the Corinthians, they were the ones who were claiming to be wise. And he says, is there not one that's wise enough among you to even try these trivial cases? Because they had left the Word of God and were going to other sources. Let us be a people who goes to the Word of God. Three, what causes problems among us in the church? No sense of brotherhood. There's no sense of brotherhood. In verse 6, he says, but brother goes to law against brother. Let me tell you something. We need to kill the individual mindset in the church. We need to kill it. We need to kill this idea that you're okay as long as you come and sit in a service and listen to a sermon. Because the reality is you're never going to be discipled the way you need to be discipled in an hour a week or an hour and 15 minutes a week. We need to cultivate and foster this idea of community and intentional disciple-making. There's a new Disciples Making Disciples class that will be starting next week, I think. Terry, is that right? And Terry would love to have you get plugged in there where you can learn how to walk alongside someone and disciple them. And you may say, I, couldn't, I could never do that. I don't know how to disciple anybody. And I've heard Terry say it many, many times. All you've got to do is stay one step ahead of the person. None of us, none of us are where we need to be. But there are people that are behind us that we could pull along, that we could push toward Christ. There's no sense of brotherhood. And he says here, brother goes to law against brother. I was watching yesterday, and I'm so, I'm so thankful when God does this. Just give me illustrations out of, out of thin air when I'm not looking for them. I spend a lot of time each week studying and preparing sermons and digging and looking but that's just how God is. Sometimes he just throws something on us. I was watching ESPN while I was eating lunch, and there were all this, this huge panel of these former Super Bowl winners. And they're all just talking about their memories and their experiences. And, and it came to Teddy Bruschi, who won multiple Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. And he tells the story. I was st- sitting there watching. He told the story of how they decided in, in that year, in, in, um, in, I believe it was 2002, to come out of the tunnel together. Instead of coming out individually, up to that point at the Super Bowl, the teams would come out and they would introduce individual players. And it was a huge moment for them to come out and, and they would come out of the tunnel and they would say, well, starting for the New England Patriots, Teddy Bruschi, and everyone would go wild. 
Well, Teddy tells the story of how they had came, they had all season long, they had come out of the tunnel together as a team, but they debated all week before the Super Bowl whether they would come out as a team or come out individually. And he said he remembered in the locker, in the locker room that Lawyer Malloy yelled out in the locker room, we're going out as a team. Teddy Bruschi said that was the first moment that he ever felt invincible. Listen, listen to what he said. He said, people were shocked. People were shocked that we would do that because it is individually validating to hear all that, all that and to have your, your moment. But it was the first time I really felt invincible as a team coming out and really feeling the shock in the stadium. Just the year before was the, the Ray Lewis dance and all the individual celebration. They were looking to see how we were going to come out. Well, this is what we're all about, he said. And I swear with that, that's where we won the game. The panel turned and Steve Young, Super Bowl winning quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, he took the mic and he said, that moment was inspirational. It changed football forever. He said, we needed that. We had become such individualized players. Receivers were out of control. You guys stopped it and sent the message of what football is all about. I'm so grateful because the rest of us were the beneficiaries of that. Wouldn't it be great if a watching world looked in at a church and didn't see a bunch of individual Christians stepping on one another to get ahead? living private lives, thinking that the world was about them, but instead saw a family that says, we're coming out of the tunnel together. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church that was truly a faith family that said, that's the moment. That's why we feel invincible. That's where we win the game when we are together. We need to kill this individual spirit. It's what causes problems among us. And fourth is this. What causes problems among us is a lack of concern for the reputation of God in the community. A lack of concern for the reputation of God in the community. Verses 6 and 7, he says, You're doing this before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. I heard a preacher recently say this, and I will quote it. Some people need to get off Facebook now. Some people are hiding behind a computer, slandering brothers and sisters. They may not be taking them to court, but they're using Facebook as a weapon, and they're wielding it against the people of God and the church of God. And some people need to get off Facebook because what it is doing in the community and them looking in and seeing the church is it is destroying witness. A lack of concern for the reputation of God and His church in the community causes problems between us. Well, I won't say anything else about that. I'll just go on to the next section for the sake of time. Those cause problems among us. What does Paul say here we are to do to resolve these problems? Number one is this, a willingness to suffer loss. A willingness to suffer loss. He says in verse 7, the second part of it, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
Now this is hard, isn't it? When you've, when you've been hurt and you've been wronged and you've been defrauded, this is hard. Why not rather suffer wrong? But isn't this what Jesus called us to? Matthew 5, verses 38 and 40. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and that's where we want to live, right? Someone hurts us, I'm going to hurt them back. They won't hurt me again. But Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is what he's called us to. Isn't this also what he modeled for us? Didn't he say, if anyone follows me, let him take up his cross and follow me? When we demand our rights and fight for what we believe we deserve, don't you know that we're acting more like the world than we are Christ? The whole series, this whole series that I'm in in 1 Corinthians, I've titled, A Living Reflection of the Living God. I just want to show you the image of Jesus to show you a little bit of how we should reflect Him. Jesus suffered the loss of heaven. The loss of ministering angels and the praise and the worship there in the throne room of heaven. He never lost His deity, but He added humanity with all its pains and struggles. So in in a way, He suffered the loss of added humanity. The loss of adoration, both in heaven and on earth. Isaiah 53 says, He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. The loss of His life, when he went to Calvary, here's the one who made the tree and made the nails, made the hammers and made the Roman soldiers, allowing them all to pierce his flesh and take his life. He never lost his holiness, but he became sin for us. If this is the image of Jesus and we're called to be a reflection of him, then shouldn't we rather suffer wrong at times? Shouldn't we be willing to be defrauded at times? Shouldn't we of all people be willing to suffer losses and be defrauded in in this life? Shouldn't we reflect Him more than we reflect the world around us? Wouldn't this fix so many of our problems? The second way we fix these problems is by refusing to cause our, our brothers and sisters suffering. Refusing to cause our brothers and sisters suffering. He says in verse 8, But you yourselves wrong and defraud. Even your own brothers. In John 13, 34-35, He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're not called simply to to suffer wrong and be defrauded, but we're also to guard against causing suffering on brothers and sisters. We're to love one another. We're to give up our rights. And we're to outdo each other in showing honor. Well, if I left you there, you'd walk away saying, 
Well, that's well and good, Pastor, but that's impossible. I can't do that. That's easier said than done. Suffer wrong, be defrauded, don't cause my brother harm. It is easier said than done for the unregenerate, for the unsaved. That's what he says. That's his point in verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This may seem out of place, but it's not. We expect this type of behavior. This is what Paul's saying. We expect this type of behavior from those who are not going to heaven. And for me to stand up here and talk to a bunch of people who are not going to heaven, who've never been saved, who've never been born again, who do not have the Spirit of God residing within them, and say, why not rather suffer wrong and be defrauded and don't cause your brothers and sisters pain? I might as well be preaching to the wind. Because it's impossible for those, because they don't don't have the ability to live in a holy way. It's the grace of God that we have received. They can't help it because it's their nature. This is a graphic illustration. I heard this from J.D. Greer, but I'll share this with you, so prepare your stomachs. We were here, and right up here, a dog were to walk down the front and, and just comes, comes right up here, and, and, uh, or, or not even a dog yet, but somebody, some, one of you comes up here, and you, just, you start feeling sick, and you're queasy to your stomach. And you're up here and you get sick and you just vomit right here all over the floor. I, I'm just, I mean, just steaming vomit right there. You get the image now? I don't have to say to any of you, don't you come up here and lick this up. Isn't that gross? I don't, I don't, but I don't have to say that to you. Why? There's not one of you that wants that. But if a dog comes in this room today, I'll have to call the deacons down and have them stand guard around this and keep the dog back. Because why? Because it's the dog's nature to go to this vomit and to lick it up. You and I don't have the nature of a lost person. You say, it's easier said than done to to suffer wrong and be defrauded and not cause my brothers and sisters pain. I can't do that. Oh, yeah, you can. Your nature's been changed. If you're in Christ, your heart is not the same. And that's what he says in verse 11. Verse 11, he says to them, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's what that means. In Christ, you are no longer what you were, so live like it. That's what Paul's saying to them. Look, church, talking to the church at Corinth, you're taking things before people who have no standing in the church. You're dragging the name of God through the mud You're caring about things that you have no business caring for because you're saints. You're not the same as what you once were, so live like it. 
You've been washed from the filth of your former life. You've been sanctified, set apart to live a radically different life. You've been justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. There is no need for you to strive for His favor anymore. We rest in the mercy of His grace. Let's pray together. I don't often do this, but as you're there and your heads are bowed, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand or anything like that, but I want to talk to you while there are no other distractions and you're not looking around. You may be here and you may have been somewhat offended by me comparing you as a lost person to a dog that returns to its vomit. I don't mean to offend you. I don't mean to... to say words that would just ignite your emotions and your anger toward me. I say those words because they are true in the sense that the Bible says in Ephesians 2, that without Christ you're dead in your sins. And I say that as one who was formerly dead. I say that as one who was formerly a dog that returned to its vomit over and over again. But I have found a new nature and a new heart and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you were offended by my statement, please don't be offended. Repent from your sin and trust Christ. Repent and trust Christ and you can be saved. You can be given a new nature. Some of you are so frustrated with the patterns of your life and you need to be saved. If that's you and that's the case that you are in, then in just a minute, Ethan will lead us and I'll be sitting right down here on the front row. And if you'd like help to how to know how to come to Christ, how to be saved, I'm just going to challenge you to get up from where you are and to come down and see me. And I'd love to talk you through that and help you receive salvation today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, this is, a, this is a challenging text. This is one that in so many ways smacks us in the face. God, it shows us the ugliness of who we are. But God, by your grace, we don't have to be that. By the finished work of Christ at Calvary, we can be set free from that nature. We can be set free from sin, be forgiven be declared righteous, be washed the filth of this former life. So God, I pray in this room, Lord, that you would do that work, that you would call men and women and boys and girls to yourself, call us away from sin, and call us into your arms that we would trust you completely. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already said that I'll be here at the front. I won't be standing down. I'll be sitting right up there. But if you need to come see me, either for salvation or if you just need special prayer, I'm not a priest. You don't have to come to me. If you're, if you're a child of God, you have direct access, just like I have direct access through Christ. But if you'd like a partner to pray with, I'd be glad to pray with you. Some of you may need to take somebody by the hand, maybe that you've offended, that you've gone back and forth with, you've been offended by. You may need to take them and come and kneel across the front and pray with them. Maybe there's somebody that you're struggling to forgive. 
And today you hear the words, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? And that's the hardest thing in the world for you to think about. Maybe you just need to come and pray, God, would you help me to do that? Whatever it is that God calls you to do, whether it's to join this church, whatever it is, respond in obedience to Him. Let's worship Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.